Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Handmer, and I study international space cooperation, space treaties, and space debris at the University of Sydney School of History and Philosophy of Science. Recently, I travelled to Melbourne to attend the Space Industry Association of Australia conference, which was being convened in conjunction with the Avalon Airshow. Held every two years over a week, the Airshow was first hosted at Avalon in 1982. It has a strong focus on Australia's defence capabilities and brings together government, the defence force and private industry to experience a breadth of tech, including fighter jets like the Hornet, Super Hornet and F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, as well as cutting-edge UAV or drone technology. The airshow offers those in the industry as well as the general public on public days the chance to get up close to our military technology and those who operate it. I cornered Dr Malcolm Davis, a senior analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, to talk about space and its importance for our broader national security picture. You will notice that this podcast has a lot of background activity, which could not be fully edited out. We were sitting in a tent on a busy airfield, under a flight path and directly adjacent to the military working dogs display. In retrospect, This was probably a silly idea, but if nothing else, I hope the podcast will give you a first-hand sense of the buzz and activity of the event. Malcolm Davis nominated one of his favourite pieces of music, the Blue Danube Waltz, as it appears in 2001, A Space Odyssey, to begin and end this podcast. Well, I'm here with Malcolm Davis from ASPE. Malcolm, would you be able to tell me a little bit about what you do? Okay, well, I'm a senior analyst uh, in defence strategy and capability at ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. ASPE is sort of like Australia's leading think tank on defence and strategic policy and national security issues. And my role at ASPE is looking broadly at 
defence strategy, capability development. I look at a lot of uh, issues like space policy and space capability as well as future force structure, future, future military technology. So a lot of tech stuff, a lot of you know, focus on where technology and capability are going. And when we met for the first time last year at the ASPE, was it Australia's Future in Space? Australia's Future in Space conference, yeah. There was a lot of talk about that and about Australia's role in space, but particularly with that slant towards a defence security um, perspective. Something that you don't often get a lot of in the kind of science and STEM and space is exciting conversations, yeah. but nonetheless quite important. It is important because space is like a centre of gravity, and by that, I mean that we've got a dog barking somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, a centre of gravity is sort of like the, the central point whereby military operations are dependent on this particular region. And mm. so for uh, Western military forces um, that are dependent on information systems and building a knowledge edge, um, all of those systems go through space. The what's known as the C4ISR network, the command, control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. All of that happens in space. And so if we lose access to space, um, we, our ability to fight that information-enabled war and to gain that knowledge edge goes away. And, and the way I describe it is, um, I paraphrase um, Lord, Lord Montgomery of El Alamein. Uh, he was saying in, in World War II that if we lost control of the air, we lose the war and we lose it quickly. Well, that works for space. If we lose access to space, we lose the war and we lose it quickly. So, as some context for listeners, Malcolm and I are currently at the Avalon Air Show and we've just been in the Space Industry Australia Association Conference on Australia's industry in space and there was talk about launch capabilities and what Australia can offer the world that's unique in terms of um, the cadence of launch and how quickly you can get yeah. things off the ground. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what we what Australia can offer the world and particularly our allies in terms of space beyond that launch capability. What else do we do well? Well, starting with the launch capability, we're in a really good location. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're particularly in the areas of uh, northern Australia, we're close to uh, the equatorial latitude so we can benefit from the Earth's spin by getting payload into space cheaper. Um, we're also a sparsely populated large landmass so there's not so much of the regulatory problems that you would see for example launching from the US or Europe. So that's the first point is we're geographically well located to, to launch from launch in payload into space. Second point is that um, being a new space power um, we can identify uh, areas of technology that are leap ahead and go to those directly. We don't have to replicate every step that U Europe or the US or Japan or Russia or China have done. We can just go straight to reusable rocket technology. We can go straight to small satellites. We're not so heavily regulated. Um, we are working on getting rid of some of the regulation that's there to make it easier and quick for us to launch and cheaper. And so there's a whole series of technological, uh, national and business uh, drivers that I think make Australia a very good place uh, from which to undertake space activities, whether it's space launch, satellite manufacturing, uh, space science, what have you. To what extent do you think that Australia should be bringing in um, people from other countries, so bringing in that knowledge where they have had 20 years or 30 years of experience versus developing our own sovereign capabilities? 
for example, as a, an Australian, it can be difficult to get work with um, NASA or JPL or some of those bodies in the US. Do you think it should be equally difficult for non-Australians to get work in the space industry here? Look, I think we can benefit by tapping into overseas expertise. Uh, as you say, there's a lot of people over there uh, that have that experience already and that could really fast track our development. Having said that, we shouldn't just be dependent on overseas. We shouldn't just uh, engage with the large overseas primes. Uh, we should be encouraging the growth of, of sovereign space capability here. So that means stimulating small companies uh, you know, that, that are trying to start up here. It means the Australian Space Agency investing in local companies uh, to get them uh, up and running, give them a chance to be able to be competitive. That's certainly been the message I've been hearing from the, um, the people who are running space companies. It's yeah. very much, give us money, please, and, yeah. you know, and keep regulation to a minimum. Absolutely. It's, I think you have to, to make money, you have to spend money. Mm. And government has to understand that. So probably the, the budget that the Australian Space Agency has been given is a, is a start-up budget. But the Australian government of the future, the next 10 years, is going to have to spend more money if they really want to see space take off. But uh, above all else... Um, we shouldn't fall into the trap of going down the Space 1.0 path. Uh, we should be getting the Space Agency to focus on developing space industry and letting that commercial sector grow because that's really where you're going to get the fast pace of innovation and progress. If we go down the 1.0 path where the government is doing everything, everything slows down because the government is risk-averse. You learn through failure, you learn through innovation. To challenge that, though, I mean, arguably there are some cases where it's just not economically feasible for one company to invest enough money to build the sort of infrastructure that Space 1.0 has given countries like America. Yep. So big launch facilities or big rocket testing facilities. That's something where I think even though we don't want to do Space 1.0, the government can actually play an important role in investing because in a sense they're not limited by the risk associated, the financial risk, but also they've got access to and, and the ability to make decisions and get the land required and all of that look, sort of thing. I think it's a, it's a careful balance. And right. It, you know, even if you look in the US now where you have NASA, which is very much a Space 1.0 organisation, they are also supporting and helping Space 2.0 entities mm. like um, SpaceX and Blue Origin to get established. So I think you can have government assistance to Space 2.0 companies to get them up and running. Mm. Um, but if you look at the American example, the rapid progress is occurring in the commercial sector, not in the government-run sector. Uh, NASA has fallen well behind schedule with the space launch system. It's well over budget. Mm. Uh, and at the same time, you've got companies like SpaceX you know, moving ahead with their he um, heavy uh, launch vehicle and the Starship spacecraft uh, that is going to basically eclipse what the SLS can do sooner and cheaper. Mm. Um, so I think that you know, government can invest in the private sector and help them. Private companies also can form consortiums uh, to share the load uh, to achieve common goals. That's the other thing we could do. Yeah. Uh, but really small companies, yes, they're always going to be constrained in what they can do. We just heard from Pam Melroy, an ex-Australian astronaut for the yep. US, um, about her work 
in the past with DARPA and their particular model. And I think there's a lot to be said for it when you can be willing to throw something out, you know, mm. when it stops working and not pour money into yep. it trying to make it, get it back on track. Mm. But perhaps that's also something that Australia needs to be thinking about um, for that really transformative technology so that we can be innovators and, and lead the world in that. There's no reason why we shouldn't be doing things like DARPA does here, in, in my opinion, but then I'm yeah. very optimistic. No, look, no I am too. Uh, look, I agree with you. I think that uh, one of the things we heard yesterday was um, comments by University of Queensland, I think it was Professor Michael Smart, um, about hypersonics. And he made the really valid point that the Australian higher education sector, their research culture is about doing more research. It's not about commercialization uh, and developing products that can then grow the economy uh, and I think this is a fundamental mistake that we do research in an area like hypersonics to do more research rather than to actually develop something that's that's real and capable and that can actually add a new um, uh, economic um, level to our to the Australian economy so we need to get our heads around new ways of thinking uh, in terms of how we use space how we develop technology I think the DARPA model is a good model to have um, because it does emphasize innovation it does say failure is good because you learn from failure and I think inevitably in government run programs they say failure is bad because we can't afford to risk um, taxpayers funds in failure mm. that's why you see NASA being so risk averse and why it slows its progress right down compared to yeah. the commercial sector no, I think it's important for the government to give itself permission to fail. Yeah. Um, taxpayer funding it might be, but taxpayers deserve the best to come out of their yeah. money, whether that involves failure yeah. in a few instances first, I think. Absolutely, I think you're right. Um, and maybe, maybe that's about communication and the government being better at communicating the fact that stuff isn't easy yeah. and that failure might happen. And I think it's also about the government learning to think in new ways. Uh, and you know, it's, it's traditionally been a, a, a mindset within government that you, you're risk averse. Mm. And I think in the space business, you can't afford to be too risk averse, otherwise you achieve nothing. That's true. Mm. I mean, I think it's important that you have some research which is targeted towards developing technologies that then contribute to our economy. Yeah. But I also would step, I would put myself slightly on the side of knowledge for knowledge's sake is still a good oh, idea. Um, because you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So I, I worry a little bit with our drive in Australia towards STEM education that it perhaps is short-sighted. Um, in what way? Well, when I was going through school, there was a lot of push towards studying things like commerce and economics, the idea being that if you studied, and, and law, um, the idea being that if you studied those things, you would have sort of a guaranteed job and contribute to the economy and make lots of money and all of those good things. Yeah. But in actual fact, when I was going through um, law school, I looked at the numbers and realized that actually there was a glut of young lawyers and mm. not enough work for them. And so I made the decision to step sideways into something completely different where arguably there was no chance of a job ever. But nonetheless, here we are and I managed to still eat. Um, and I think that that's going to that risk approach and permission yeah. to fail. I think giving young people permission to not necessarily follow the path that looks like it's going to lead to riches yeah. is also very important because you just don't know what will happen in 30 years and yeah. when 
um, when the young people today will be those decision makers and in the, the senior and, positions. And, and look, I, I think from my observation uh, is that young people that these days are paranoid about not achieving uh, things quickly. Uh, you know, they want to be right at the top of their uh, career by the time they're in their early 30s and you know they have so much time in which to develop themselves and go in different directions and broaden their professional skills but they don't they, they it's this race to the top that is relentless and I see it in public service in particular where I work with defense for a number of years and this desire that once you join as a grad you know at age in my in your early 20s by the mid 30s you've got to be an assistant secretary uh, and um, you know I think this is actually counterproductive they should be prepared to step sideways and um, and uh, basically you know, develop their skills in a broader way. And there's several different ways you can come back to achieving your goals. And I think that can be applied to space as well and how we develop our space economy. So obviously there's the, you know, the future workforce. Yeah. But in terms of the national security picture, how does space look in 2030? Well, look... Um, you and I have had this discussion back and forth, and uh, my view is space is a contested environment. It's, it's, it may be in the past it was a like a peaceful sanctuary that sat above terrestrial geopolitics, um, but that's no longer the case. Um, I think increasingly space is a warfighting domain, uh, which is unfortunate, but that's the reality that, we live, that we're living with. Uh, and is one of the factors that's driving, for example, the Trump administration to push for the Space Force because they see real challenge from countries like China and Russia that are developing um, uh, counter space capabilities. So, if you if you if you take that forward to the 2030s, um, I would see that sort of counter space capability capability becoming far more sophisticated. Um, the ability to deploy weapons in space quickly on need uh, I think will become real because you'll start to see things like hypersonic space planes that can launch like an aircraft, fly up into space, deliver a payload or attack a target and come back down and land like an aircraft. And so there'll be this blurring between space and air um, mm. that is that is on the horizon. Um, I think that um, the, the military... Um, dependency on space is not going to go away it's going to increase mm -hmm. and that's for Australia as well and the civil dependency too absolutely um, you know as we go into 5g and the internet of things we're going to depend more and more on space-based systems you look at a company called fleet space uh, here in Australia uh, they're preparing for that by establishing that space segment to support 5g internet of things so our society will depend more and more on space and uh, I think that that makes it more vulnerable so we do need to actually think about ways to mitigate that risk and to maintain what's known as space resilience where our systems either can be resistant to, to intentional harm or if if they are threatened, then we can rapidly replace them and reconstitute space capabilities in some sort of conflict. And when you look at where the Americans are going, they are going down the path of uh, reconstitution and augmentation. So rather than having a, a small number of large, very expensive satellites, which you know, basically putting a lot of eggs in a small basket, they're going for 
larger numbers of cheaper, smaller satellites that do the same thing. Right. And they're also developing the means to rapidly reconstitute space capabilities so that they can plug gaps in, in, the, in, the, in the event of a conflict. That also raises questions around space debris when you have large numbers of low-cost, um, smaller satellites being sent up in, in networks or sort of flocks, um, if you like to think of it that yeah. way. There is more of a risk of collision with debris that is already there yeah. um, and the creation of new debris. And I think when we talk about space as a warfighting domain, there, there has to be a realisation that things in orbit um, remain in orbit for quite a long time. And actually, um, space warfare with sort of kinetic, non-reversible weaponry is in nobody's interests yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, but from, from the other side, it means that I guess there is more interest in developing those non-kinetic reversible options like dazzling and... Absolutely. And, um, and I think that, so um, that um, uh, when you look at what the uh, Chinese and the Russians are developing in terms of counter space capability, um, they are moving away from the kinetic kill uh, systems that you saw demonstrated in 2001, they're moving towards non-kinetic kill. So there's much greater emphasis on co-orbital ASATs uh, that can deliver electronic warfare attacks on a satellite. Uh, there's much greater emphasis, as you said, on laser dazzling jamming of GPS uh, and also cyber attack on satellites from the ground. Mm. And so you may not even need an ASAT. It may just be that you wage cyber warfare against satellites and take over them or just dis disable them that way. So you don't want to physically shred the satellite. You want it intact, but you just yep. want it sitting up there dead in space. Mm. Uh, or you want to be able to take control of it and either pass false information to your adversary or um, use it in some way uh, against their interests. So I think you're right. I think uh, um, the, the, the issue of space debris is... is big in the minds not only of us but also our adversaries mm. they don't want to dis uh, deny themselves access to space it's almost like that mutually assured destruction concept with nuclear warfare you have the same idea in space and yeah. it doesn't have to be nuclear yeah. it just has to be messy exactly and and i don't think any side really wants to get into a situation whereby they're they're physically destroying each other's satellites because it just creates massive debris fields that then mean neither side can use space and states do think about post-war um, you know, sort of developments and if say for example we get into a war with China and China wins they want to then be able to exploit that victory in an effective manner and that for that, that means they need space mm. so they can't afford to physically deny themselves space, they're shooting themselves in the foot. Do you think that we should be in that case as Australia investing more heavily in developing those capabilities um, on a sovereign basis so we can offer that to our allies? Look, I, I think we are well placed uh, to develop sovereign space capabilities that can contribute towards space resilience. So I talked about augmentation and reconstitution. Mm. Um, we can develop the space launch that is responsive from Australia. And we can develop the small satellite capabilities that allow us to play a role not only for the Australian Defence Forces but also to contribute to allies such as the United States. And we can say to the Americans, We've got your back covered in terms of space resilience. We have satellites ready to go if you need extra bandwidth uh, or if you need to plug gaps in constellations that have been taken out by adversary counter space. Um, 
I, I don't necessarily believe we should go down the path of developing our own counter space capabilities. I don't think that would be helpful, mm -hmm. and uh, it's also you know, not in in our national strategic culture to challenge the rules-based international order in that way. So, you know, I think that we will be investing in augmentation, reconstitution, resilience, and I think we'll also be investing in the sorts of capabilities that can enhance deterrence in space to actually prevent an adversary from using those counter-space capabilities in the first place. In a world that's more about cyber warfare and reversible actions against adversaries how does what does escalation look like how do we know that we are at war arguably there are cyber attacks happening all the time and we had one in australia recently mm -hmm. um or a couple actually yeah. so how does that happen well look i think that you know we can you know visualize escalation occurring you know, perhaps prior to the outset of a military conflict whereby we would suffer cyber attacks on some of our critical infrastructure in space, uh, you could see um, satellites suddenly going dead uh, or being uh, non-responsive. And you know, the, the first one might be, well, maybe it's a technical glitch, but once three start happening or five, then you start realizing, actually, we're under attack. Um, I think the other problem might be that uh, if an adversary can spoof satellites using cyber, uh, we wouldn't know whether the satellites are feeding us false information or not. Mm. Um, there was an incident in the Black Sea uh, where the Russians spoofed a GPS system, uh, a GPS satellite, and basically diverted a civilian oil tanker on a course that had the, the captain of that ship not changed course. They would have run aground. Uh, so it's those sorts of grey zone hybrid warfare type actions that we could see as a form of escalation uh, that would build up over time, that we'd realise that actually, yes, our space systems are under attack, our key critical information systems are under attack, um, and you know, we'd then have to decide how do we respond to that. Um, we'd try to respond in a manner that didn't generate more escalation, but that may not be possible. And, you know, and at that point, we are involved in a war situation, so I think you know, we would have a range of options open to us. Proportionality know. is hard in those cases. It is very hard. I yeah. mean, you can imagine something simple like spoofing GPS systems so that everything was moved five metres to the right yeah. would actually have an enormous impact on all sorts of aviation. So they don't even have to do that. They just change activities. the timing signals so that our command and control systems fall apart or our stock markets too. collapse. Uh, you know, it's these sorts of really small, nuanced effects that can generate massive operational and strategic outcomes. They wanted to crash our economy um, by changing the timing signals on GPS. Um, uh, yeah, our stock market co uh, collapses, it can't trade. And so that would have a really serious economic impact. It would be a way of coercing us. What do you see as the threats to Australia? Look, I, I think that it, in, in the broad sense, everyone is focused on a rising China. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, mm -hmm. you know, China is determined to challenge uh, US strategic primacy in the Indo-Pacific region. And they are determined to wage, uh, use smart, uh, sharp power, sorry, uh, to wage political warfare against US allies, including Australia, to get them, uh, to coerce them to change their alignment away from the US and towards China. Um, they ultimately want to use both military and non-military means to 
dominate and and impose a degree of hegemony on Asia uh, to restore what the Chinese feel is their rightful place as the Middle Kingdom, uh, which they lost at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, So I think we are worried about where China's going under Xi Jinping, uh, the rapid military build-up of the PLA, their willingness to use uh, hybrid warfare and and grey zone activities, uh, and space is part of that. Uh, And so when we think about defence capability, uh, I think that we have to think with China in mind as the principal adversary. I mean, there are other threats, obviously, like international terrorism that we have to keep abreast of. potential for military conflicts to occur on the Korean Peninsula or uh, in the Middle East and so forth. But really, I think our focus is very much on China these days. Mm. And we saw some of the impacts that, um, to your point on terrorism, that misinformation can cause with the uh, the drone that was at the airport in the UK over Christmas. Um, With some people suggesting there may not have even been a drone, just reports of a drone. And the confusion and and problems that that can cause. Uh, In Australia, we are, I think, very fortunate to be isolated from a lot of that, uh, a a lot of those risks. But things around misinformation, I think, especially in this, um, in an age that's dominated by social media and the speed with which information can travel will be a very important thing for Australian governments to keep abreast of. Well, there's a great book by Peter Singer called Like War, uh, where he talks about how social media can actually be weaponized and used as a weapon of war. Mm. Uh, and, you know, your, your listeners should definitely have to check it out. Um, and I think that when you look at how the Russians have interfered in the 2016 presidential election and the uh, European election process. They've been involved in Brexit. They've been involved in the 2018 uh, congressional elections. And there's, there's strong evidence that they're building up to be involved in the 2020 presidential election. They're doing this through information campaigns, through things like social media and fake news and so forth. And, you know, this may sound like something, oh, well, you know, don't listen to, don't believe everything you read on Facebook. But this is a direct assault on a fundamental basis of our society, which is democrat democracy and the democratic process. Mm. And if we do nothing, then countries like Russia or China that can do this can actually undermine our ability to know what's real and what's not. Um, the ability now to fake videos uh, and actually have avatars that look exactly like someone who's real saying something that you want them to say is a powerful weapon in Mm. the hands of an authoritarian state. So we have to be very careful about this. To our earlier point about Australia's economy and building the economy, sometimes I feel like people sitting in Canberra sometimes feel that they can, we can, as Australia, have our cake and eat it too. We can um, exclude China on some bases and then, um, you know, the next minute when we want to sell something, China becomes our best friend again. Uh, and I wonder whether that's a sustainable approach to take. Um, you know, if we had to make a decision on that, do you, do you think it's possible to balance those two positions moving forward over, say, the next decade? Or do you think we're going to have to make a bit of a call on it? Because whether or not yeah. information is taken by various means or is given to China or is sold to China, the information is still going there. The tech is yeah. still going there. It doesn't matter if there's a price tag attached. Look, we've been balancing on that particular needle 
now for some years where mm. we're trying to balance our strategic reliance, uh, strategic alliance with the US versus our essential trade relationship with China. And I do think that that's becoming more and more difficult for us to do. I do think we would be very smart to diversify our trading relationships and not rely so heavily on China. And I think that's something that this government and the next government really need to grapple with because if we don't, well, you saw the things with um, the Chinese cutting off oil, um, uh, iron ore shipments and coal shipments into Dailan. Uh, you know, they claimed it was it was nothing but domestic issues, but in actual fact, everyone understands it was a warning signal to us. Um, we would be silly to continue to maintain that dependency. I think there is that that kind of conflict within our society, whereby certain sectors of our society, particularly in the business sector, want to trade with China because they see profit and that's understandable or our universities want to do research with China and get Chinese research funds because you know that's good for them but at the same time there is real national security and defense challenges that are not imaginary that are real that we are in a period of strategic competition with China that this is a very serious situation and I don't think either the business community or the higher academic community can just ignore their responsibilities. Um, they don't sit above the, the, the geopolitical and defence and national security interests of the state. Uh, and that's a challenging thing for them to, to grapple with because you know for, for years and years they haven't had to worry about this. Now they're going to have to worry about this. And I'm not sure how they, they, they get on top of that. You don't think there's a risk that acting as though we are in a, um, a period of strategic manoeuvring and competition with China will make it so? Well, I would argue we've already made it. It already is so. Mm. Uh, it's happening. Uh, uh, I, I think that something fundamentally has shifted um, since Xi Jinping came to power in Beijing. Um, we've gone from the days of Hu Jintao uh, and uh, harmonious rise towards a peaceful world order where the Chinese were trying to work with us to a degree to Xi Jinping you know, directly challenging the US and directly asserting China's interests. So you know, I think that you know, we're starting to push back mm. um, but I think suggesting that somehow if we don't push back then bad things won't happen is, is wrong. I think we are in a pre-war period. And that's a tough thing to say because that carries with it a lot of implications. Uh, and you know, where does it lead down the track? It's also a risky thing to say. It's a risky thing to say, but but it's the reality, and we can't avoid the reality that we're in. Some of your listeners may say, "Well, no, we're not in a pre-war period. We can choose not to be involved in that war." Um, but they then have to ask themselves, "What does what is life like living in, under Chinese hegemony?" in the 2020s. Uh, if the US and China go to war and the US loses, or if the other scenario, there's no war, but basically the US cedes strategic influence to China, the sort of thing that uh, Hugh White, for example, is suggesting. Um, what does it look like for Australia if yeah. China dominates Asia? Uh, what, is, you know, what, what sort of um, uh, demands would they make on us as a state? Uh, you look at the nature of, of the, the government in China as opposed to the Chinese people. The government in China is running concentration camps for millions of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Um, 
they're establishing a social credit system and mass surveillance through AI. Is that the sort of society we want to exist in? Is that the sort of society we want our kids to grow up in? Or is it worth defending traditional rules-based international order, including Western liberal democratic principles? Some might argue that Australia also has its own um, moments of shame when it comes to asylum seekers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that, we're not. You know, we're not. We're not um, sort of uh, lily white. You know. And that the US um, perhaps surveils its population more than they would let on. Some would say that China is just more honest about what they're doing, but bodies such as the NSA are also keeping a pretty firm eye on it on the citizens. I think I think that you know some have advocated that uh, the, the gentleman that went over to Moscow for example and then ended up defecting to the Russians. You know, you've got to ask why he went to, to Russia when he was so concerned about li- civil liberties and freedom of speech. Um, uh, look I think that yes the NSA has a job to do. Uh, I don't think there's any hard evidence that to the effect that they are monitoring every American citizen uh, in terms of their email or their um, their phone calls and what have you. Um, I think after 9-11 America as a society was changed to a degree um, and that's understandable but I don't see in the United States um, the same evidence of what the Chinese are doing with social credit whereby if you say something that the regime feels is against its interests, then you are denied chances in life. Um, you are denied promotion in work. You are denied uh, financial opportunity. I don't see uh, mass surveillance uh, via AI that you see in China, whereby everyone has facial rec- recognition and you, know, you walk and step out the door and the gov- you know the government is monitoring you or the government is monitoring you on uh, seen a Weibo, uh, and if you say the wrong thing, then you get a knock on the door at 3 a.m. Uh, from the MSS. So yes, I'm sure there is surveillance going on in the U.S., but it is it is not the sort of totalitarian, uh, you know, sort of dark shadow that I, I think is starting to see. You're starting to see in, in China. Mm. I don't know really what to think on it. It's a complex issue. I would like to think that it's possible to balance individual freedoms and privacy with national security interests Mm. but it's a very complex area and I'm sure that China is wrestling with that um, as much as the rest of the world is at the moment. Final question for you Malcolm before we finish up because we've got to go and watch aeroplanes take off. Absolutely and that's fun. And I'm incredibly excited to get your expertise on that. With Donald Trump in power at the moment, can Australia rely on America still? I don't know is the honest answer. Uh, I wanted to give Trump a chance, um, but frankly, he's let me down all the time. Okay, uh, so I'm not confident that we can rely on America under Donald Trump. Uh, now, I worry about what happens after him, whether he leaves before 2020 because he's impeached, or whether he leaves in 2020 because he's not re-elected, or if he somehow is re-elected and uh, he's survives through to 2024, what comes after him? I don't think it's necessarily axiomatic that we go back to the way things were prior to Trump. Uh, it could be that American political values and the American nature of the polity has changed sufficiently that you could get something like Trump but maybe progressive left, which could be almost as bad in different sorts of ways 
you know, the, the Green New Deal, for example, you and I have talked about this. I think that it's socialism dressed up under climate change clothes. And that would be terrible for America because it would just drive its economy into the ground. Um, so... On the other hand, some of the um, aspects of socialism that we have in Australia, I think America could benefit from. Oh, yeah. Like uh, our healthcare system, Absolutely, for but I think, I think that the sort of things that uh, AOC was talking about with Green New Deal was far more to the left of what, than what we're talking about. You're not feeling the burn. No, I'm not feeling the burn. Um, but I think that, no, the, the bottom line is I don't think we can rely on, rely on Trump. I think we can rely on the U.S. military and the national security community, but I don't think we can rely on Trump, mm. and that worries me. Well, thank you so much, Malcolm. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, as always. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, and it's always willing to chat with you, Annie, and uh, it's been a pleasure uh, participating in uh, another one of your fantastic podcasts. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. If you would like to find out more about anything in this podcast or the history and philosophy of science, you can tweet me on at ahandmer. That's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R.